You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. The Constant is brought to you by Industrial Artifacts. Oh man, how excited am I to have them back. In addition to hundreds of antique signs, clocks, and sundries, Industrial Artifacts is also stuffed with stories. On their blog, which you can find at industrialartifacts.net, they've started collecting those stories, including one about a firehouse light bulb in Livermore, California, that's been burning for more than 100 years. It's a great story that goes hand-in-hand with the unique lamps, fixtures, and furniture you can find at Industrial Artifacts. More than that, you can check out their brilliant, beautiful new items built from found materials and objects, all of which are perfect for your home, office, restaurant, or bar. And right now, Industrial Artifacts is offering constant listeners 15% off their entire first order. Just enter coupon code THECONSTANT at checkout. So go to industrialartifacts.net and remember to enter coupon code THECONSTANT at checkout to get 15% off your first order. Today, the stretch of Western Avenue between Belmont and Addison on the northwest side of Chicago isn't much to look at. There's a big strip mall, a couple of grocery stores, a Chipotle. But a hundred years ago, this was a much different place. Right here across the street from the Economy Auto Mart were the main gates to Riverview Park, the largest amusement park in America. It started off as Schutzen Park, a private shooting range owned by Wilhelm Schmidt. It was good fun for him and his buddies, but their wives and children were left to entertain themselves while the boys went out with rifles to tag skeet. So in 1904, Schmidt added a couple of swing sets and a dance hall. It was just 10 years out from the famous Chicago World's Fair, where the Midway and the Ferris wheel had debuted to the globe. Soon enough, Wilhelm's son George took those attractions and some others he picked up from a German amusement park and expanded his father's shooting range into a larger, and larger destination. Fast forward to 1916, and Riverview has taken its place as the largest amusement park in America. Admittance to Riverview cost just a nominal fee, assuring that even the city's poorest could spend a day there. But to see the sights and ride the rides required additional tickets. In July of 1916, you could buy tickets for the Velvet Coaster, the Tickler, the Expo World, the Metrodome, the Witching Waves, or the 70-foot hand-carved carousel. There was the Shoot the Chutes, a massive water ride that plunged guests into a huge reflecting pond where gondoliers would pilot you safely, fingers crossed, back to shore. 
From its beginning until the day it closed in 1967, Riverview was known for being both a fun place for kids and an immensely dangerous one. As David Mamet once said, and yes, I'm quoting David Mamet, the great thing about Riverview is that you could die there. Almost every ride experienced at least one fatality at one time or another. If you weren't prepared to take your life mildly into your own hands on the roller coasters and whirligigs, you could spend your tickets on more grounded affairs. As you walked through the Midway in 1916, you'd see carnival games and have your skirt blown up by hidden air jets. There was the Tunnel of Love, Fool the Guesser, and a long row of dunk tanks with an unspeakable name because, surprise, dunk tanks were racist. Continue back a ways and you'd find the freak show called Spook Town, where for a ticket, you could enter to see contortionists, sword swallowers, and various deformities and maladies, two-faced men, four-legged women, babies in jars. Then there was the less torrid, offensive, or dangerous stuff. The Monitor and the Merrimack, a chintzy clockwork recreation of the famous naval battle, which opened in 1908. The Scenic Railway, Fairyland. There was plenty to see in Riverview. But if you were walking the Midway in July of 1916, you were in for a special set of treats. Hang around the park until 8.30, and you could watch The Last Days of Pompeii, a spectacular stage show featuring 600 performers and a whole crap ton of fireworks. To bide your time waiting for Pompeii to be swallowed by fire, there was a manatee tank, an ostrich race, and even a miniature go-kart loop with monkeys as riders. Alongside those temporary exhibits was one more. From a distance, it might not have looked like much. Just a long metal tube with some tiny round windows along its side and a conical tip at the front. Give over a ticket and you could walk inside this weird 40-foot-long submarine that had been pulled out of the Chicago River a year before. Nobody knew how old it was. Some said that it was built in the 1840s. Nobody knew where it came from or who built it, though there were plenty of guesses. And nobody knew who the remains found inside of it, of a man and a dog, belonged to. Nobody knew anything about the submarine in 1916. And today, nobody does either. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today, part two of The Fool Killer, Infinite Distress. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. A proper story has three acts. In Act 1, we learn the origins, the beginnings, the people, and the world. Act 2 begins with a disruption, a change in circumstance that triggers a question, a mystery. Then, we follow that mystery through to Act 3, where things wrap up and settle into a new order. This story, 
the story of the Fool Killer, is missing Act 1 and Act 3. It ought to begin with a submarine being built, but we don't know when or how or by whom that happened. And in place of where Act 3 should begin, the part where the mystery is figured out and the wreckage is put in a museum for posterity, there is, instead, a quick blackout. The whole of what we know about the Fool Killer lives in a brief glimpse, a small handful of pings before silence. And that's what makes this mystery such a corn kernel in my teeth. You'd think that a 19th century submarine launched in Chicago would leave a footprint. Somebody would have noticed something so weird and written about it. And if that same 19th century Chicago submarine sank, tanking a man and dog with it, that too might have been worth noting. But no. That isn't to say there aren't clues or possible culprits. In fact, once you start looking, you see hypotheses everywhere. But they're all just that. Hypotheses. Theories. They're all sentences that begin, what if? Or, let's say, or, could it be? The missing third act is equally as flummoxing. Having discovered a large submersible vehicle of unknown origin in downtown Chicago in 1915, you'd assume somebody would keep an eye on it, make sure it got properly investigated and cataloged. At the very least, someone would certainly realize it was worth tracking and preserving. It's difficult to understand how a giant metal submarine could be built, launched, and sunk without someone noticing, but it's just as hard to believe such a thing could simply go missing again once it was discovered. Yet, that's exactly what happened. The Fool Killer goes from being found to being lost again in the course of barely 10 months. So, let's start there, with that tiny window of its journey that we do know. Act 2 begins in November of 1915. Four months earlier, the Eastland capsized near the Clark Street Bridge, killing nearly 850 people. Divers were employed to help bring up the bodies. One of those divers was the young William Frenchie Deneau, who came back to the location of the disaster in August to search for obstructions in the river on behalf of Clarence Darrow and his team. On November 23rd, Frenchie was once again diving the river, this time laying cable for ComEd. As he walked along the bottom, he stubbed his toe on a bit of something sticking up from the muck. Frenchie knelt down and began to feel about, quickly realizing the object was long, steel, and approximately the shape of a zeppelin, as he put it. When he surfaced, he displayed the same craven money-making instinct which is practically all we know about him, saying, a man ought to get extra pay when he has to run the risk of submarines every time he dives, oddn't he? What happens next is one more bizarre stick in the pile. Rather than being claimed by the city or the state or the federal government, rather than being raised by the Coast Guard or the Navy or even the Chicago Historical Society, salvage rights were given to Frenchie himself for, quote, exhibition purposes. Once traffic on the river had cleared for winter, Frenchie had the fool killer raised. Where exactly this happened is another thing in dispute. Some articles put it at the Rush Street Bridge, others at Wells or Madison. Those aren't huge differences, just a couple of blocks this way or that. But the disclarity speaks to how little of the information printed in newspapers at the time is reliable. At any rate, 
On January 15, 1916, the Fool Killer came out of the river, and it's then that Frenchy discovers the remains. It's worth saying here that these remains were partial. The skull of a dog and bones of a man are how the papers put it. This is a mini-mystery all its own. It's entirely plausible that some of the remains were lost before or during the salvage. The sub had to be dragged a couple of miles upriver to the Fullerton Street Bridge before it was lifted up almost vertically out of the water. But it's also plausible that the bodies of either the man or the dog were never complete, that they were not fools killed by the boat. We'll get back to that in a bit. So, now Frenchy has a submarine and some bones. What does he do with them? Well, first off, he writes a vainglorious press release in which he calls himself Captain Deneau and the hero of the Eastland. He tells the world about the submarine and the remains. Then, he gets to work making money. By late February, the Fool Killer was on public display at a skee-ball arcade on South State Street in the Loop. For 10 cents a pop, skee-ballers could have a view, investigate the bones, and even take a gander inside the ill-fated submarine. If they dared. By May, the gimmick had apparently run its course, and Frenchy either sold or rented out his find to Charles W. Parker. Charles Parker was born in 1864 in the small town of Griggsville, Illinois, smack dab between Springfield and Hannibal, Missouri. When he was five years old, his father Edwin moved the family by covered wagon to the hard-living pioneer stead of Kansas. At 17, Charles struck out on his own, taking odd jobs, building fences, and digging wells before becoming janitor at the Abilene Courthouse. In 1882, Charles began his entrepreneurship. He took loans from several friends to buy up a shooting gallery, which he began to tour around Kansas. The next year, he added a high striker, or strongman game, where customers hit a plate with a mallet shooting a puck upwards in hope of striking a bell at the top of a tower. In 1892, he brought a couple of friends and his brother-in-law in on the scheme to buy an old merry-go-round to add to the act. The merry-go-round was successful enough that Parker and his brother-in-law were able to buy out the other investors the next year. A couple years later, Parker opened an amusements factory, at first manufacturing shooting galleries and then merry-go-rounds of his own. Parker's innovation on the merry-go-round was to make the horses move up and down as the whole thing circled. Then, in 1902, he started forming carnival companies. First was the C.W. Parker Amusement Company. Then he added C.W. Parker Shows and the Great Parker Shows in 1905. In 1908, he added the Greater Parker Shows. And finally, in 1916, came Parker's Greatest Shows, the largest carnival ever at that time assembled with a train carrying 35 cars of performers, animals, rides, and attractions, including the Electric Girl, Snooks, the smallest monkey in the world, and, you know it, the Fool Killer, the first submarine ever built. The Fool Killer is mentioned as appearing as part of Parker's Greatest Shows in May at Olween, Iowa. By the end of June, it's back in Chicago at Riverview Amusement Park. And then, it disappears. There are no more advertisements, newspaper articles, drawings, or photos. It's possible that the Fool Killer only came to Riverview as a loan or a guest spot from Charles Parker, 
the funny monkey motorists that are promised along with the submarine and the last days of Pompeii sound an awful lot like the monkey speedway that was part of Parker's greatest shows the next year. But by then, the fool killer doesn't seem to be with the carnival. So maybe it's more likely it stayed at Riverview, which was known to abandon, change, and alter attractions at a rapid clip. There's another good possibility. Riverview closed each fall and opened again in May, but during the down season that followed the fool killer's time there, the United States entered World War I. A giant, 40-foot-long steel tube might have made good scrap for the war effort. It's doubtful we'll ever know the final fate of the fool killer, but it seems safe to assume that we're not going to find it in some backyard or old warehouse. One way or the other, the submarine was lost, and it's doubtful it existed in any form by the 1920s, at the latest. There's Act 2. The only stuff we know for sure. As for Act 1, well, that's the real mystery. During the brief time it was physically available to people to investigate, there seemed to have been three going theories for its origins. The first concerns our friend, William Frenchie Deneau. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. On April 11th, 1917, William Deneau, or Captain Deneau, as he then liked to be called, stood on the Main Street Bridge in Ottawa, Illinois. After the Eastland, the Fool Killer, and the recovery of a boy's body near Peoria, Illinois, Frenchie was something of a minor celebrity. So, a thousand people, including 500 students, were there to see him when he jumped from the bridge into the Fox River. Deneau wasn't suicidal. He was in Ottawa to demonstrate his new invention, the Neptune Swimming Jacket, a specialized life vest he had built and patented in hopes of selling it to the army. There in the frigid April water, Frenchie floated, showing the crowd that with the Neptune on, he could fire a rifle, smoke a cigar, even read a newspaper. The army didn't take the Neptune, but it did take Deneau. He joined up as a doughboy in France, during a victory parade back in Chicago, he jumped into the river and swam the whole route. Then, he returned to work as a professional diver, working salvage, rescue, and fittings. After Pearl Harbor, he went back to the U.S. military, helping lay anti-landing defenses in the Aleutian Islands. After he was done there, he moved to Los Angeles. He returned to Chicago for a memoriam of the Eastland in 1958, where he spun a wild conspiracy theory for the press. 
saying that the tragic steamship had been secretly repaired and was now taking passengers on cruises from L.A. to Catalina. This was, as you might suspect, total codswallop. In fact, we know exactly what happened to the Eastland after the disaster, and it's a story we'll get back to in a few minutes because it dovetails back into the Fool Killer mystery in a very spooky way. The reason I'm going on about Frenchie Deneau again is to reinforce that he was a shameless self-promoter, a fabulous and at least a bit of an opportunist. This is the guy who claimed to have recovered a full quarter of the victims of the Eastland, even though he was but one of dozens of divers, sailors, welders, and other rescuers engaged in that job. He falsified evidence for Clarence Darrow and his legal team. He called himself captain, despite holding no rank. He jumped into a freezing cold river to try to sell a life preserver. And he made the outlandish claim that he'd been on board the Eastland in California more than 40 years after it capsized and more than a decade after it was scrapped once and for all. I'll be honest, though. I do like William Deneau. He seems like a lot of fun, a true character. But it's hard to imagine a less reliable person to be the discoverer of what he called an ancient primitive submarine. I mean, just take the cold, flabbergasting fact that his first reaction to having found said ancient primitive submarine was to plop it in an arcade and sell it to a carnival. And so the first working theory for who built the Fool Killer is none other than Captain William Frenchie Deneau. Could the notorious diver have built a fake submarine and dropped it in the river in a wildly circuitous attempt to get some of that sweet, sweet skee-ball money? It's a patently ridiculous idea, but then again, Frenchie was a patently ridiculous man. Still, those who believe he orchestrated the whole thing as a hoax have some pretty hard hills to climb in order to make the theory work. That there was, in fact, a 40-foot-long metal craft in the river is inarguable. There were plenty of articles written about it, and that it was on display at the Skee-Ball Arcade, Parker's Greatest Shows, and Riverview Amusement Park is documented. Plus, there are photos of the thing being pulled out of the river. Even if it were fake, somebody had to have built it, and there's no reason to think Frenchie had the means to do that. If he had, he'd still have to get it into the river, unnoticed. That'd be difficult at any time, but he also would have, presumably, had to do it between when the Eastland capsized in July and when he discovered it in November, when multiple investigations and hundreds of thousands of looky-loos were mulling about. No way. I think we can safely scratch off Frenchie Deneau from the list. Or at least we can write him off from being the builder of the submarine. There are those who say that maybe the submarine itself was legit, but that Frenchie added the bones. Seeing as neither the skeleton of the man or the dog were complete, there's some sense to that. It probably wouldn't have been too hard for Deneau to find some human remains in 1915 Chicago, especially given his work as a recovery diver and dog bones would have been a cinch. But I'm skeptical. The thought behind this notion is that Frenchie would have added the bones to his find in order to make it more spectacular. More people would come to skee-ball if there were a submarine and some skulls than if there were just a submarine by itself. Which, well, now that I'm saying it out loud, yeah, okay, maybe. There might be something to that. So, all right, we'll put that in the maybe column. But still, what a risky course. 
Deneau apparently gave the human parts over to authorities to try to identify them. Forensic science didn't stand much of a chance to do so, but it still seems like an unnecessarily chancy thing to do. The last thing to say about the remains is the last thing said about the remains. After the skee-ball arcade, there's no more mention of them anywhere. If they came along to Iowa or back to Riverview, nobody thought it was worth writing about. Take that for whatever it's worth. So we'll keep a dim candle burning for the fake body theory, but we've got to blow out the fake submarine one. Whoever built the thing Deneau pulled out of the river, it wasn't Deneau himself. When the news of the fool killer hit the papers, submarines were already on people's minds. The Lusitania had been torpedoed by one just six weeks before the Eastland disaster, so one of the first interpretations of the news was that it must have been a German U-boat sent to attack Chicago. Local and federal authorities were quick to nix that idea, but then again, they might have had reason to lie, lest the truth should cause a panic. Could the paranoid people of Chicago have been right all along? Could the fool killer have been part of an abortive German attack? Absolutely not. What, are you kidding me? For one thing, a German U-boat would have had to make it not just across the Atlantic to America, but then through the Gulf of St. Lawrence, above Maine, through the St. Lawrence River, a long series of canals, rivers, locks, and lakes, across Lake Ontario, up another canal through to Lake Erie, then across that, up the Detroit River, into Lake St. Clair, and the St. Clair River, into Lake Huron, all the way up Lake Huron, through the perilous Straits of Mackinac, and then down the entire length of Lake Michigan. That, that's a lot. Plus, the craft pulled out of the Chicago River looks nothing like the German designs of the time. It also doesn't look to me like it would have been particularly well-suited to a few thousand miles of sailing, but what do I know? All that said, there is one German U-boat that we do know did ply Lake Michigan, but it's certainly not the fool killer. We know that a great many ways, its size and shape, its service dates and locations, but instead of focusing on any of those obvious and incontrovertible reasons, I'd prefer to tell you the fun one. UC-97 was a mine-laying submarine for the German Navy. She was surrendered to the Americans and brought to the Great Lakes as a publicity stunt to get people to buy war bonds. After the war, UC-97 was used for target practice and sunk 40 miles off the coast of Chicago. The ship that sunk it was called the USS Wilmette. In 1921, when it sunk UC-97, the Wilmette was a gunboat used for training Navy sailors out on the Great Lakes Naval Station. The Navy had acquired the Wilmette in 1915, after its career as a passenger ship ended in tragedy in the Chicago River. It was then called the Eastland. Gosh, I love those little historical curlicues. So no, the Eastland was not being used as a cruise ship in California, as Deneau outlandishly claimed. It spent the teens, 20s, and 30s, and 40s as a naval gunship on the Great Lakes, until it was finally decommissioned and turned into scrap in 1947. Where were we? That's right. Some folks thought and think that the Fool Killer was a full-blown hoax perpetrated by Deneau, but that seems entirely implausible. Others thought the Fool Killer was a German U-boat, which it definitely was not. But most believed the Fool Killer was... I'm sorry, this must be getting confusing. 
The thing Frenchy fished out of the river didn't have anything written on its side, and we don't know where it came from or who built it. So where does that name come from? First of all, it sounds cool, doesn't it? Fool killer. Fool killer. That's fucking rad. Of course I'm not going to pass up the opportunity to say it over and over again, and you'd best believe I think it's a catchy title for this series. But I didn't pull it out of thin air. When Deneau raised his submarine, he didn't wonder what to call it, and neither did the newspapers or the people of Chicago. Some might have wondered if Frenchie had a hand in it, and some might have worried it was a U-boat, but most people, from Deneau to the Chicago Tribune to the average man on the street, figured they knew exactly who built it and whose body was inside. And because they knew that, they also knew what to call it, which was, obviously, the Fool Killer. The Constant is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. Imagine if, instead of combing through barely legible newspaper articles, letters, and suspect autobiographies, everything I needed to put this miniseries to rest was sitting there in a convenient, entertaining, comprehensive streaming service. It's not. I've checked. But The Great Courses Plus does give you instant and unlimited access to thousands of lectures from top, engaging experts on anything from secret societies to travel photography to exoplanets. They've even got a course that constant listeners might really dig, What Einstein Got Wrong. This thorough six-hour lecture series uses Einstein's blunders and mistakes to contextualize his brilliance and the effect of his ideas upon the modern world. And it does a better job of explaining the title and logo for this podcast than I ever managed. I'm not even jealous. After all, I'm just a podcaster, while the lecturer on this series is Dr. Dan Hooper, a senior scientist at Fermilab, Swoon, and associate professor of astronomy and astrophysics at University of Chicago. Dude knows his stuff. Get the excitement of learning cool things from smart people by signing up for The Great Courses Plus. They're offering constant listeners an amazing deal. Three months of unlimited access for just $30. That's only $10 a month. Just go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash theconstant to see the full details and sign up. Again, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash theconstant. One word for three months of unlimited access for $30. And I will get credit for sending you there. Sign up now and see if I missed the special series on Chicago submarine history. And by BetterHelp. Everybody has something in their life that gets in the way, in the way of success, relationships, or even happiness. BetterHelp Online Counseling is there to support you. With BetterHelp, you get access to a counselor personally matched to your needs. Family conflicts, depression, self-esteem, anxiety, grief, even sleep troubles. And if you're not happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time. They've got 3,000 professional licensed therapists across all 50 states and available worldwide via desktop, mobile app, Android, and iOS apps. With BetterHelp, you connect online at your own time and pace with video, phone, chat, or text services. All of them safe, private, secure, and confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And because you're a listener to this show, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code THECONSTANT. That's one word. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash theconstant 
Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love and start communicating with them in under 24 hours. That's betterhelp.com slash the constant. Peter Neeson was born on March 3rd, 1862, near the town of Tonder in the south of Denmark. He moved to America when he was 17 to escape German incursions and soon wound up on Francisco Street in Chicago. It's said that he received a college education, though I can't figure out where or in what, and that he spent the 1880s as a maker of fine instruments. Again, what kind of fine instruments, I can't say. However he managed it, he ended up as an accountant and, in 1892, formed Neeson's Business College, in the building which today is the home of Chicago dramatists, for the upwards of four dozen people listening who might find that interesting. There, he taught business and accounting, as well as basic English grammar, to thousands of students, mostly poor German and Scandinavian immigrants. Not long after 1895, the college closed, and that's when Peter Neeson transformed from a humble business school instructor into the bookkeeper for a small cabinet company where he worked for the rest of his life. Peter Neeson was a sober, upright, straight-laced accountant and teacher, the kind of guy that the easily flustered folks of the 1890s would respect. Quiet, dignified, prudent. But Peter Neeson didn't just have a business college and a bookkeeping position. He also had an alter ego called Mr. Bowser. Mr. Bowser first appears in upstate New York on July 10, 1900. There, Mr. Bowser shot the Niagara Rapids. I'll leave it to the newspaper Scandinavian to breathlessly describe the action. Peter Nissen of Chicago, who prefers to be known under the name of Mr. Bowser, went safely down the Niagara Rapids and the Whirlpool Rapids yesterday. The trip over the rapids lasted two minutes and a half, and during about one-third of this time, both Mr. Nissen and his boat were hidden by the waters. Mr. Nissen wore his business clothes, as usual, and outside these he wore a coat of cork. He was not tied to the boat since he wished to be free so that he could swim in case the boat were to overturn without righting itself again. Mr. Nissen stepped into his boat at 4 o'clock in the afternoon and was pulled out into the current by two men in a rowboat. Having arrived in the middle of the stream, his dangerous course was beginning. Almost at once, the boat was buried in the foaming waves. The keel of the boat, weighing 1,250 pounds, shot straight up into the air as if it had been a little stick of wood, and the boat literally turned topsy-turvy. Both man and boat disappeared beneath the waters, and the people along the shores and upon the bridges believed that he had expired. Suddenly, man and boat shot out of the foaming waters. However, clearly Mr. Nissen had not lost his courage. With his left hand, he clung to the boat, while with his right, he pulled off his cap, waving it to the people. When finished with the rapids, Mr. Nissen yet had to pass the dangerous Whirlpool Falls. Here, the waters circulate at a terrible rate of speed. 
one gets the impression as if the waters in an immense fall are dropping straight into the center of the earth. The boat was pulled down into the whirling deep. Then it reappeared, and again did Mr. Nissen wave his cap. The whirlpool kept him prisoner for 40 minutes, but little by little he managed to work his course out toward the outer edge of the pool, and three men, fastened by ropes to stones at the side of the river, swam out toward the whirling waters as fast as they dared, and finally succeeded in getting hold of a rope which Mr. Nissen threw to them, and he was pulled ashore. Women rushed up to Mr. Nissen to shake his hand. Men applauded him. He complained that he was freezing, the water was ice cold, and he was almost palsied after the icy bath. Mr. Neeson slash Bowser had shot the rapids on a boat of his own construction. It was a 20-foot-long open-air kayak made of pine, elm, and fortified with an iron keel. It was driven by a pedal-powered screw. Neeson named it the Fool Killer. The next year, Mr. Bowser was back in Niagara Falls with another boat. The first Fool Killer was an odd duck, but the second was much stranger. It was longer, yet more narrow. It was fully enclosed, with a steam stack raising out of the back. Wide World Magazine called it the smallest decked steamer in the world. But it was more like a steam-powered kayak. Not that it mattered how it was powered. It was meant to go down a raging river, after all. And indeed it did. In October 1901, Peter Neeson's daredevil persona, Mr. Bowser, ran the Niagara Rapids successfully for a second time. You can see him do it yourself, because the voyage of the Fool Killer 2 was filmed by the Thomas Edison Company. Go to our website, constantpodcast.com, to check it out. Watch, and you'll see, well, it looks pretty much like a little submarine, doesn't it? When Frenchie Deneau pulled the long metal tube with its conical nose and its portholes out of the river, he knew what it was, and so did the reporters and the people of Chicago. It was the Fool Killer 3, and the remains inside, the newspapers said, must belong to Mr. Bowser himself, Peter Neeson. It's an intriguing explanation. Even before I tell you that, yes, Peter Neeson did build a third Fool Killer after the world's smallest steamship sunk in a Niagara whirlpool on Mr. Bowser's third attempt to shoot the rapids. But that's where the supporting evidence ends. And ends hard. Because the actual story of the Fool Killer 3 pretty well precludes the possibility that the submarine belonged to Neeson. It's 1904. And the Western world has spent the last century seized by a strange obsession. How to get to the North Pole. The reasons for that obsession are many. For a start, there was money to be made sailing the Arctic Sea, harpooning whales. And there was the ego of exploration. Throughout the 19th and into the 20th century, various ships, sleds, airships, and ski teams competed for the title of Farthest North. But there were also a host of pseudoscientific theories about what might exist at the Pole. These ideas were at once widely disparate and curiously complementary. They were also totally and completely wrong. The ancient Greeks knew what you'd find at the North Pole. 
a temperate, paradisic land of giants called Hyperborea. In Hyperborea, there was no war or strife or want, no disease or even old age. And like so many ideas the Greeks pulled fully out of their butts, European society long considered Hyperborea a definitely real thing. When Mercator produced his famous maps, he figured he knew three things about the Arctic. One, there was a giant whirlpool. Two, there was a gigantic metal mountain. And three, it was warm and free of ice. Fast forward to the 19th century, and the influence both of Greek ideas and Mercator's cartography are firmly settled. There was some question about the Lodestone Mountain, the giant whirlpool, and the shrouded paradise, but pretty much everybody believed that once you passed through some pack ice at the bottom of the Arctic, you would reach a temperate, open polar sea. There was science, or something like science, to support the idea. Scholars understood that during summer, the Arctic was bathed in perpetual sunlight, and it stood to reason that ought to keep it warm. They also knew that the globe was not a perfect sphere, that it was a bit smushed at the top and bottom, and so they reckoned that at the poles, the ambient heat of Earth's molten core would seep out and warm the waters, and potentially the lands, above. Nowhere were they more dedicated to this belief than in the United Kingdom who saw in the possibility of a Northwest Passage an opportunity to reclaim its dwindling glory. After the loss of its American colonies and a long standstill with the French Navy following Admiral Nelson's victory at Trafalgar, the English were getting restless. There weren't many ships left to battle and fewer lands left to colonize, and those were pretty much the two things England based its identity on. Clearing the Polar Sea would provide the nation not just a new form of global dominance, but something to break the tedium of empire. So Great Britain dedicated herself to reaching farthest north, to plying the Polar Sea, and to discovering the fabled Northwest Passage. Meanwhile, across the pond, an even more ludicrous idea was taking hold in the United States, where ludicrous ideas tend to. John Cleves Sims was a hero of the War of 1812, having fought at the Battle of Lundy's Lane on the Canadian side of Niagara Falls and at the Siege of Fort Erie. After his discharge in 1815, Sims moved to St. Louis and then Newport, Kentucky, working in both cities as an unsuccessful trader. But while he was busy failing at business, he was also formulating a new theory, that the Earth was hollow. Actually, it wasn't exactly a new theory. Edmund Halley of Halley's Comet had forwarded a similar idea in 1692. He posited that the Earth was made up of a number of concentric, hollow shells, each separated by a gaseous, luminous atmosphere. That atmosphere, he said, was released near the North Pole, and it was that glowing gas which formed the Northern Lights. Where Sims' idea differed from Halley's, which, I should note, had long been discredited, was that he believed Earth's outermost sphere, the one we all live on, had two gigantic holes at the top and bottom. The Arctic Sims hole was, he reckoned, 4,000 miles in diameter. It had still more fantastic properties than that, though. Because the lip of the hole was so gradual, Sims figured you could just walk right down it without even necessarily realizing you were descending. There would be sunlight due to some improbable diffraction, warmth, water, plants, animals, and even, possibly, people. 
1818, Sims wrote up a short letter and sent copies to every scientist, college, and senator he could think of. To all the world, I declare the Earth is hollow, containing a number of solid concentric spheres, one within the other, and that it is open at the poles 12 or 16 degrees. I pledged my life in support of this truth and am ready to explore the hollow if the world will support and aid me in the undertaking. John Cleve Sims of Ohio, late Captain of Infantry. In a postscript, he really laid down the gauntlet. P.S. I ask 100 brave companions well-equipped to start from Siberia in the fall season with reindeer and sleighs on the ice of the frozen sea. I engage we find warm and rich land stocked with thrifty vegetables and animals, if not men, on reaching one degree northward of latitude 82, we will return in the succeeding spring. JCS. In 1820, Sims began touring throughout the American Midwest, lecturing about the hollow earth. Slowly but surely, he gained adherence and support. There was, if you squint really hard, a whiff of sense to his declaration. To Sims, and those who followed him, a series of concentric spheres seemed more structurally sound than a solid ball, and they saw such designs everywhere, in bones and trees and bugs. Furthermore, the giant holes at each end of the world would help explain a number of then-mysterious phenomena. Where did birds go in the winter? Why, into the hole. What caused the ocean to have currents? The falling of water into one hole and out the other. By 1822, Sims had orchestrated his followers to write thousands of letters to their congressmen, demanding an Arctic expedition to the center of the Earth. Over the course of a year and a half, 10 bills were introduced into the U.S. Congress to initiate Sims' exploration, but each one of them was either voted down or tabled. His health in decline, Sims was shouldered by his greatest disciple, Jeremiah Reynolds, editor of the Wilmington Spectator. Reynolds, along with another devotee named James McBride, published a readable, commonsensical, or, well, as commonsensical as the premise allowed, book, and then ferried Sims to the East Coast to lecture to state houses, universities, and public squares. The impact was incredible, but Sims was too sick to go on for long. In 1827, he had to leave the circuit to rest. That rest lasted two years, only ending at his deathbed, where he expired in May of 1829. But Reynolds had some good news to comfort him in his final moments. President John Quincy Adams had agreed to send the expedition. Unfortunately for Reynolds, Andrew Jackson became president that very year and reversed Adams' promise. Fortunately for Sims, he was dead and never had to know that. While the U.S. government never undertook Sims' journey, a few private interests did, and a lot of fictional ones. In fact, If you want to understand just how profoundly the concept of the hollow earth penetrated Americans and how equally smitten by the open polar sea the English were, you only need to look at the literature each nation put out during the 19th century. Writing about the polar sea and Hyperborea were Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Charles Dickens, Samuel Coleridge, Willie Collins, Bram Stoker, Charlotte Bronte, and Mary Shelley whose Frankenstein is not only the most referenced work of literature in this show's whole life, but it's also framed by the tale of a captain sailing to find the Polar Sea. In America, 
Edgar Allan Poe wrote about the hollow earth over and over again. And then his works leaked to France, where Jules Verne became even more obsessed with the hollow earth than Poe had managed to be. Oh, and then there's Herman Melville, whose masterwork, Moby Dick, the great American novel, was partly inspired by another book about a white whale called Mocha Dick, which was written by, get this, Jeremiah Reynolds. Meanwhile, actual non-fictional explorers made doomed attempt after doomed attempt to reach the North Pole. The most famous of these attempts was the Franklin Expedition, who tried to reach the fabled Northwest Passage, only to have both its ships, the Terror and the Erebus, locked in the ice, where all hands died and disappeared, only to be discovered in the last decade. Franklin's fate was not the exception, but the rule. The dozens and dozens of parties who set out to find either the Passage, the Open Sea, Hyperborea, or the Sims Hole, and even those who merely wished to plant a flag at the North Pole, all ended in failure. Frequently, that failure was catastrophic. The essential problem was the pack ice. It was too solid to sail through it without your ship getting stuck or even crushed, but it wasn't solid enough to cross over land. William Edward Perry, who commanded an attempt at the pole in 1827, was able to get to 82 degrees north, but when they ditched their ship and set out on land, they spent a month walking north, only to find that the ice they were walking on was drifting south at the same rate they'd been advancing. They'd spent 30 days on a gigantic, frozen treadmill. In June of 1871, an American party led by Charles Francis Hall set out on board the Polaris. Hall fell ill in October and died, but not before accusing the expedition's chief scientist of poisoning him. The crew fragmented, 19 of them got lost on an ice floe, and then the Polaris ran aground towards the end of 1872. The crew was stuck in northern Greenland for the better part of a year. The USS Jeanette made another attempt in July of 1879. Less than two months later, it was caught in the ice and remained there for nearly two years before it was finally crushed, leaving the crew to make their way slowly towards Siberia. By the time the ignominious voyage came to its awful conclusion, more than half its participants were dead, and so was the theory of the open polar sea. At the end of the 19th century, it was clear that if you wanted to reach the North Pole, you'd have to be more creative about it than just sailing up. Fritjof Nansen and Hallmar Johansen had the bright idea to try to ski to it in 1895, and they managed to set a new farthest north that way. Two years later, Salomon August André, a Swedish engineer, made for the pole with two friends in a hydrogen balloon. They didn't make it either, and died trying to walk back to Norway after the balloon sank from the sky. After that, the attempts to reach the North Pole got really weird. In 1901, a Wild West showman by the name of Samuel Franklin Cody dreamt up a way to lift ships and sleds alike over the ice via humongous kites. Two years later, Brahma Joseph Diplock invented the Ped Rail, a giant coal-powered train which, instead of traveling on rails, would walk about on wheels surrounded by dozens of rotating feet. But the most fantastical design to reach the North Pole came from Mr. Bowser himself, Peter Neeson. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. 
I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan. But nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Neeson's plan to overtake the top of the world went like this. He'd construct a colossal canvas bag, 115 feet long and 75 feet in diameter, which he would inflate with a suction pump to the height of a six-story building. On the inside of the ball, he'd hang a long rod from one end to the other, creating an axle. And from that rod, he would hang a car in which he and his team could ride like a hammock as the wind blew the bag like a tumbleweed to the pole. The pilot would be able to exert some small amount of control by leaning the car left and right on the axle. But for the most part, the thing would be at the mercy of the gales. So it would have to be deflated and anchored anytime the winds weren't favorable and then blown back up again when they shifted back north. There was a certain genius to the plan, however stretched it was. Neeson's design theoretically mitigated the pack ice problem by being essentially amphibious. The ball could roll over ice and float on water. But otherwise, it was not a very good idea. Sorry, Peter. He had the good sense to test the concept first, at least. His first balloon was just five feet long, and from its axle, he hung a big spring from his car. The miniature apparently performed to Neeson's liking, and so he started on a second, larger test vehicle, big enough for him to ride around in, which he named, well, <laughs> you know what he named it. The Fool Killer, number three. Fool killer number three was 35 feet long and 15 feet in diameter. The center axle was 12 feet long with portholes on either side to navigate by. On the axle sat a seat that he could slide back and forth to steer, he hoped, and from it he hung a cradle that he could rest in whenever he got bored of careening end over end in a giant balloon. Finally, there was an air hose run from one end so that Neeson could, like, breathe. During the summer of 1904, the humble accountant Peter Neeson once again transformed into daredevil Mr. Bowser and took several short trips in his roly-poly Fool Killer 3 along the beach and shallow shoreline of Lake Michigan. At one point, he successfully transversed two miles of sand and water in one go. With those successes under his belt, he decided to up the ante. He would pilot the Fool Killer 3 from Chicago's Ohio Street Beach across a hundred miles of Lake Michigan waters to Michigan City, Indiana. On November 29th, 1904, at just after three in the afternoon, Peter Neeson climbed into the balloon, sealed it up, got on top of his sliding seat, and gave the signal to his assistants to cut the tethers. 
A small crowd watched as the ball rolled its way over the sand, onto the lake waters, and then over the horizon, out of sight. In 1915, Frenchy Deneau, the papers, and the people of Chicago understood that the submarine found at the bottom of the river was the Fool Killer 3, and the body inside belonged to Peter Neeson. But that's impossible, because Fool Killer 3 was a balloon, not a submarine. And Peter Neeson died inside of it, crossing Lake Michigan, not the Chicago River. On the morning of December 1st, 1904, Sophie Kohler found a ripped-up canvas balloon on the shores of Stevensville, Michigan. 200 feet away lay the body of Peter Neeson. The third time around, the killer had gotten its fool. Just how Neeson died isn't clear. His family believed that he had made it alive and well across the lake, only to have the balloon get stuck in the shallow water. They believed he cut his way out of the Fool Killer 3 and passed away of exhaustion and exposure only after he had first succeeded in his mission. But it's also possible, maybe even probable, that his air hose broke and he suffocated somewhere midway over the waters, only to be carried by gale force winds to the other shore and ejected from the wrecked balloon. All that's certain is what was written the next day in the Indiana Tribune that the body was brought to Stevensville and kept in the town hall. Wrote the reporter, The hands and face were frozen, and the lineaments of his face bore signs of infinite distress. The news of his incredible demise was carried in papers across the country, from the New York Times to the Washington Post, and even back to his native Denmark. His obit ran in all of the Chicago papers, which, just 11 years later, were witlessly calling the submarine fool killer and attributing the remains impossibly to a man whose death and burial they had already cataloged. When the skull was discovered inside the raised submarine, the Chicago Tribune decided it belonged to Peter's brother, William Neeson, also of Chicago. But William Neeson of Chicago wasn't Peter's brother. He was just some guy who had nothing to do with anything. What's worse, he wasn't dead. Throwing more mud into the waters, they wrote at various times that the submarine had sunk in 1870, 1890, and 1897. The Washington Post wrote that it had been part of the Chicago World's Fair of 1893 and had sunk with several people aboard. The Post appears to have fabricated this out of whole cloth. Trying to riddle out the true origin of the Fool Killer submarine via the newspapers of the time is a fool's errand. They contradict each other and themselves. They invent names and dates and events. The early 20th century was a terrible time for accurate reporting in America. Hearst and Pulitzer were involved in a yellow journalism war in New York. Stilson Hutchins and John Lynch had a similar feud going in D.C. And in Chicago, the Tribune was being helmed by Colonel Robert McCormick, an absolute carnsarned lunatic and unapologetic political partisan. There is basically nothing of value to be gleaned from any of it. And yet, what other choice is there? We're left with no available option but to pore over the articles of the day in hopes that some corn kernel of truth accidentally found its way into the giant turd nugget of sensationalism. And the best candidate is a single sentence written in the Tribune. 
Amid its circuitous and contradictory exploration of how the submarine was sunk and raised again and sunk and raised again and piloted by Peter Neeson or else his non-existent brother William or, 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 there is a tiny little lead buried there. Rather than saying Neeson, whichever one, built the submarine, it says it was bought. From whom? The Tribune only says an Eastern man. Is that hogwash? Is that just made up like everything else? And if not, what does it mean? We'll try to find out next time on The Fool Killer Part 3, The Man from the East. Music for today's episode by Blue Dot Sessions, Lee Rosevear, and Kevin McLeod. My special thanks to this week's voice talent, Phil, Phil Rigorelli, Heather, Heather Chrysler, Chrysler, and Our Fake Histories, Sebastian, Sebastian Major, Major, whose show you ought to be and probably are already listening to. Three more Fool Killer episodes to go. You don't want to wait until the end for people to find out about it, do you? So please tell a friend, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. If you'd like to support the show and get access to special bonus content, go to patreon.com slash the constant and sign up to be one of our patrons. Finally, go to constantpodcast.com to see photos and documents pertaining to this episode, including Mr. Bowser's journey down the Niagara. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with part three. Until then, from Chicago, Illinois, where five students of the University of Illinois, Chicago, set out on an Arctic exploration just half a year ago, this has been The Constant. Fritjof Nansen and Halmar Johan... Fritjof Nansen and Jalmar Johansson. Boy, those are those names. Hmm. Fritjof Nansen and Shalmar Johansson had the... <laughs> uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's always the Norwegians. Consistently the Norwegians. And, and many other people as well.